Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, what's the real cyber threat from our peer competitors? What I worry about is less an actual attack against United States infrastructure that would have a significant impact. My real worry is that Russia or China will demonstrate their capability to do so. And and again, their intent, uh, if we take certain actions. And what's the Defense Logistics Agency doing about the biggest cyber threat it faces? The FBI reported that it's the largest single attack vector, about 35-ish percent of all attacks originate with some sort of Uh, It's Friday, January 7th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A programming note, my colleague Billy Mitchell will host the Daily Scoop podcast next Monday through Thursday. His guest lineup next week includes Jeff Schilling, the CIO at the National Cancer Institute, former Federal Chief Information Officer Tony Scott, and lots more. February 8th is the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop's putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End in D.C. from 8.30 to 3. You can read more about it and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The British military is triaging a cyber attack it discovered in March of last year against its defense academy. Retired Air Marshal Edward Stringer says the attack forced the academy to completely rebuild its network, and he believes the attack could have come from a nation state like China or Russia. Suzanne Spaulding is Senior Advisor for Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security, and she's a member of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Suzanne, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are we learning as a nation, as a government, about what potential adversaries are capable of in cyberspace, especially regarding destructive intent? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Uh, Great to be with you again. Um, You know, we have long understood that Russia and China are incredibly capable adversaries. What we have always worried about is the coming together of capability and destructive intent. You know, when I've described the nature of the threat from particularly from nation state adversaries are Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, um, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about a, a kind of X, Y uh, axis and, and you've got destructive intent on one and, and capability on the other. And, and what you worry about is, is movement up to that far right corner where they come together. And, uh, and that's what I think we are, we are increasingly concerned about today. You know, we've always said Russia and China are very capable adversaries in cyber, um, but they have lots of reasons not to have destructive intent. Uh, And we've always known that the geopolitical situation, whatever is going on in the world, could flip that in an instant. And we certainly are uh, at a very um, uh, pivotal point, particularly with respect to Russia, obviously, today. One of the the tenets of the Cold War was the concept of mutual assured destruction. If we push the button or they push the button first, the other one would be able to push their button at least in time to do the same damage to the other that the first one intended. Does that same principle apply in cyberspace, Suzanne, or can they essentially get us before we can get them? Well, you know, it's muddled in cyber because with missiles, you you know where they came from. 
with cyber attacks, you can muddy the waters with respect to attribution. And, uh, and I, you know, we've, again, we've long assessed that, at least certainly for, for, for many, many years, avoiding attribution was, was very important to Russia uh, in cyber. They got more noisy as, uh, over the last uh, decade or so, uh, but I think uh, that you know they would they would have an interest in muddling the attribution just enough to complicate our efforts to uh, to respond um, with force and and to bring our allies on board. All right, I'm I might be going down the rat hole here for a second, Suzanne. So so indulge me. Does what you just described mean that any nation state or any actor in the cyber realm, whether it's Russia or somebody else, would try to deflect blame to somebody else, try to make the attack appear completely anonymous? Um, What does that look like? Or do we not know yet because we haven't necessarily seen one foisted against us? I think it could take any number of forms. Um, we're, again, what we've worried about is the, the what I worry about is less an actual attack against United States infrastructure that would have a significant impact. My real worry is that Russia or China will demonstrate their capability to do so. And, and again, their intent uh, if we take certain actions. And in that way, they will seek to deter us from taking actions that are in our national interest uh, and that are counter to their national interest. So it is, I've described it in the past, it sort of a, can be a gun to our head. And I think that's what we really have to worry about. Um, and, and again, I think they can, they're, just as with the election interference initially, right, um, there was very little doubt from a kind of common sense, uh, and, if, and it would be the same if Russia's going to Ukraine and suddenly there are these uh, destructive cyber attacks, uh, very little doubt from a practical standpoint where they likely came from. That is not the same necessarily as a level of attribution you would need to take specific actions. So the concept that you just laid out there, the gun to the head concept, the good thing about that scenario, if there is such a thing, is that we're strong too. And we can also take actions, form strategies, develop policies to be able to uh, not want to be or, or be able to be deterred when we want to take action in our national security interests. Where are we in that uh, policy formulation and where should we be going in your view in that policy and strategy formulation in order to not get into the situation where there's a gun to our heads right so what you're talk what you're describing is often referred to as kind of an escalatory ladder right it's that those traditional concepts of deterrence and the problem is in cyber we don't have enough experience to realize rungs on that escalatory ladder look like so, uh, so yes, we need to be uh, developing those policies. We need to have tools in our toolbox that are not just all or nothing, but are, can give us a rheostat to dial up and dial down. But I think much more important, because from a practical standpoint, what we really need is we need resilience in our critical infrastructure. We need to be able to, uh, in effect, if you will, take the bullets out of that gun. We need to be able to say, you know, okay, maybe you can find ways in the adversary. Offense always has the advantage in that regard. 
But we have taken steps to make sure that the consequences of malicious cyber activity will not be so great that it does deter us or freeze us from taking action uh, for fear of those consequences. So that's that resilience and that's the private sector. That is what the Solarium Commission was really talking about in this operational relationship with the private sector. We have got to build our resilience against these kinds of attacks. What did your experience on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission tell you, Suzanne, about how the private sector is responding to that call? Well, the private sector has a business interest in reducing the consequences of malicious cyber activity. And I I think our days of needing to go out and sound the alarm about the dangers of cyber are are receding in the rearview mirror. Uh, And we are now very much focused, as is the private sector, on, okay, what do we do about it? What are the practical steps we can take? Um, I've been pleasantly surprised really at the largely at the reaction, for example, to TSA's security directives that have come out. Um, And with Congress's, uh, how close Congress has come to uh, requiring mandatory reporting of cyber incidents, for example. Uh, And I think that will happen this year. And I think both of those are indications that, uh, that industry takes this seriously, that they understand how important this is for their own business reasons, in addition to uh, our national security. No CEO wants to be the one who, because they have failed to harden their systems or build resilience, holds the entire country's ability to take actions in their interests at stake. Um, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission uh, sunsetted on December 31st and transitioned to a nonprofit on January 1st. What do you think the legacy of that organization will be, Suzanne? Well, of course, we're not done. So, um, uh, you know, we have a uh, we have a uh, we have a lot that we've accomplished so far. Uh, quite a few of our recommendations have made it into legislation, but we know that our work is not done. The National Cyber Director is probably the most visible uh, uh, legacy, if you will, of the Solarium Commission, and I do think that will be increasingly uh, meaningful as we move forward, bringing a more coherent response. But we do have a lot more still to be done. And I think holding Congress and the executive branch feet to the fire uh, is a big part of what we hope to do in our next chapter uh, for the solarium. We wanna push for mandatory reporting, but along with that, I feel very strongly needs to be this Bureau of Cyber Statistics to send the message that that information that business is going to, with some pain in some instances, hand over, is going to be used and turned around and given to them to help them defend their networks. It's not going into a black hole. Suzanne Spaulding, it's great to talk to you again. Happy New Year. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about the cyber threat landscape in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. It's not too early to plan for IT Mod Week. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. with Lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The Defense Department will stand up a zero-trust program office to lead the Pentagon's deployment of the technology. The Defense Logistics Agency is already deploying zero-trust. DLA's Chief Information Officer George Duchak tells me zero-trust includes three components. One is to uh, never trust but always uh, verify. Second is to implement least privilege. And the third is to uh, assume breach, assume the bad guys are in there. So we're big fans of what this is doing with their Thunderdome uh, project for Zero Trust. And uh, we have high hopes that probably somewhere around the beginning of next summer or early uh, part of June, July, we should be able to start adopting uh, their solution. So Zero Trust has been in the works well before the EO, uh, but the EO makes a nice forcing function uh, to get organizations to move more quickly in that direction. I think the big misperception is though that most folks think that it's some sort of an appliance that you put on your network and it's gonna stop the bad guys. It's not, it's a, it's, it's, it's a mental model change. And traditionally, if you think about the way we did uh, security in the past, the unit of trust or the unit of security was the IP address. We put up this moat and we allowed certain IP addresses in, other ones in, we kept out. So the IP address is the unit of control for security is being replaced by identity being the unit of control uh, or trust for uh, cybersecurity. And now we try to make sure we know who, the identity of the, the humans, the machines, and the connections, and how all those interact. So right now at DLA, we're really enmeshed in our first uh, major uh, modernization in 20 years. We call it digital business transformation. And it's getting us to relook and rethink our uh, business processes, procedures, or uh, uh, value proposition as such. And part of that remaking of, uh, of our IT infrastructure is to adopt this uh, zero trust mantra and zero trust architecture. Um, we're developing our own software uh, factories, DevSecOps to build in uh, security from the beginning and we're creating personas uh, for our users. So when they sign on, the persona is based on the role that they have. So it limits what systems and where they can uh, go to in the network so they don't get the you know broad accesses uh so i guess that's pretty much it you know the old thinking is to protect the network the new thinking is to protect the data on that network uh and so this whole idea of zero trust is uh creating that 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 trust contract between the people the machines and the connections so what's the intersection george of that uh new way of thinking about doing away with the moat model and an announcement like we saw recently, the Pentagon's extending maximum telework through at least through January because of the virus. You have people now that are widely dispersed working in from a number of different locations. And I wonder what the implication of that is for the kinds of, of security efforts that you're undertaking. Yeah, yeah you know, telework uh, is here to stay. I, in fact, everything you read and hear about is about you know, the new hybrid work, work as a output, not a place. And I think the federal government and DOD as well will, will adopt a model that is, is different than what we had in the past. So, so that uh, invokes uh, some additional security requirements that we have with our telework workforce. Uh, we're gonna be using uh, equipment that is not necessarily within our purview or our control, meaning your home router, uh, your home networks. And I will guarantee you that your home network is not near, nearly as secure as our DOD information network, as secure as our DOD. Uh, so uh, we have to look at ways of uh, making sure that that connection between where you're at, your home, and uh, our network is secure. And, and 
you call it multi-factor authentication. We really just do two-factor authentication now. We use a, a CAC and a PIN, you know, something you have and uh, something uh, you know, the PIN uh, as, as the uh, two-factor authentication. But we've also uh, used a couple of other things at DLA. We use a, a VPN like most organizations, and then we have a virtual desktop infrastructure. So uh, your terminal at home really is nothing more than a dumb, dumb terminal that looks just like uh, you would if you're sitting at your desk at, at the office, albeit with some latency considerations because of uh, uh, you know the network and sometimes the user's bandwidth, they don't have uh, a high bandwidth offering and uh, that induces some other latency too, so. Um, what are you seeing regarding the way that people are interacting with the security efforts? The term that I keep hearing is human-centric cybersecurity, and it's impacting the way that organizations plan and, and defend against ransomware, phishing attacks, those kinds of things, George. Yeah, the, uh, the weakest link in any security system is always the human. It's the, it's the wetware. And, uh, and you mentioned phishing, and phishing is a big, uh, uh, is the FBI reported that it's the largest single attack vector, about 35-ish percent of all attacks originate with some sort of uh, phishing campaign. And at, uh, at DLA, we do a monthly uh, uh, either phishing, spear phishing, or whaling tournaments where we uh, cleverly craft some emails to try to educate our users because if they get an email, they click on the link, then it'll pop up and say, well, this is what you should look for. It was uh, wrong. But phishing is just wildly successful because it, it exploits an innate human either flaw or feature that we want to trust. I could uh, Google Francis Rose and find out uh, some things about you and now craft an email saying, I'm a, I'm a student at American University, second year journalist student. And I'm a big fan of your book. I've, I've watched your television shows. I listen to your podcast and I read you religiously. I'm putting together an audition tape and I wish uh, uh, I would really value your your uh, critique and input of of how I'm doing because you know you're such a uh, uh, luminary in the area and I would very much appreciate. It. And I guarantee you because you know you're a nice person, you want to help somebody. You probably say, "Oh, here's a young journalist student that could use some guidance and help." You have that trust gene that all humans do. You'd say, "Okay, I'm going to help this person," and you'd probably click on that link, and it may legitimately go to some video of you know somebody trying to do an audition. But there's also some other undocumented features that come along with that video. And all of a sudden you find out your network or your system, then your network has been uh, pwned by an adversary. So. Um, don't give anybody I any ideas, first of all, George. Uh, I, I like to think I would respond the right way in that situation, but uh, you may have gotten me there. Um, what are you doing uh, at DLA regarding passwords or access to the networks. You mentioned the cat card and the pin. There have been various discussions over the last like five years for cat cards to disappear, but that access idea is still tremendously important. Uh, and it's a key part of that zero trust architecture we've been talking about. Yeah, you know, in general, very little. That's an area that I, I really do think needs some more attention. A few years ago, we uh, implemented a uh, app called KeyPass, K-E-E, -E, not K-E-Y Pass, uh, as a kind of a password vault for, for folks. But largely, it's still the two-factor authentication uh, 
that just uses your character uh, password. So something you have, something you know. I'd like to get to the third thing in multi-factor, something you are, which is either you know facial recognition or a thumbprint or some some other, uh, other sort of biometric. I just uh, I recently read an article that uh, if you uh, look on the dark web, there are roughly 1,200 offerings of kits that allow you to bypass two-factor authentication, meaning that I could go there, buy it, and I could uh, uh, use it to use a man-in-the-mill attack and get through your you know, two-factor authentication, which kind of tells you that no matter what you do, it seems like the criminals are always one step uh, step ahead of you. So now that we we know that you could be uh, owned by uh, uh, by buying a kit and getting past two factor, now we need to start moving toward multi factor. And I think you've hit on something that uh, we probably should be uh, uh, spending a little bit more attention on. George Duchak, the Chief Information Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency. You can read more about Zero Trust in the Defense Department and find a link to watch the video of my conversation with George in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Billy Mitchell's here to host Monday's show. That debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Till then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.